Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everybody to Nightlight. That is Ken that was Ken Quiet Hawk, uh who did the intro for us and he is an amazing Native American storyteller. And if you want to hear more of his voice you can go to nativestorytellers.com. He's got a tremendous amount of material there on native storytelling and it's an aspect of our history and our culture that everybody should be aware of. It's not only mesmerizing but educational as well. Mark has an amazing lady here tonight as a guest, and I'm very, very excited. I, I have pencil and paper out. I'm ready to be educated and um, informed and enchanted and enlightened. And um, as always, he brings the, um, the best and the most respected people in their fields to Nightlight to share information with all of you. So without further ado... Mark, how are you doing tonight? I'm fine. Get, getting ready for Christmas. Uh, ha, how are you doing, Barbara? I I am just fine. Excited yeah. about tonight. This is going to be a good show. Uh, yes, I think so too. And you know, let me do my little rambling, and you know, we'll get uh, started with you know the best of the best. Um, you know, this is another Christmas show. Uh, Zelda said she missed my little boy voice, and I wasn't allowed to take the three-week Christmas vacation. Uh, if you saw uh, Megan Fox's show on the Metacroft Rock Shelter just a little bit ago, um, yeah, that, that was just a warm-up for uh, tonight. Uh, about seven years ago, I met two people in a chat room who quickly befriended me. Uh, Pamela and Vera became my two native wives. Polygamy is legal in their queendoms. Uh, I'm (laughs) dedicating our uh, virgin paleo-ethno-botanical show to them, and I'm hoping Vera sees more of my transformation into becoming Creek. So far, I'm finding it a good way to be. Okay. Um, So if, uh, if you're... 
Okay, I, I have to work in my ladies. Um, okay. If, if, uh, if you've you're got followers, with, what can I say? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's you have to connect with the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, if if uh, you are familiar with the most important books on Ohio's Ohio's Hopewell culture that have been published in the last 20 years, you will find our guests' uh, contributions. Uh, Dr. Deanne Weimer is our guest. Uh, She's a professor of anthropology at Bloomsburg University. She's the leading paleo-ethnobotanist. And about three years ago, I had a chance to see her lead her field school at the Snake Den site. Uh, We're going to be featuring that in the early part of the show. And uh, she brings a spirited, multifaceted approach to the study of the Hopewell and more recent peoples like the Iroquois. And in, what, uh, two, three weeks or so, uh, we are going to be doing a... Iroquois show. So, uh, you know, Deanne is, you know, you know, t- uh, laying the foundation for a- another show, and you know, we we've been doing that you know, throughout our what twelve, thirteen shows we've been doing. So, uh, this is um, another I- important uh, discussion that is uh, laying the foundation for topics uh, just coming up within the next month. So, um, welcome, Deanne. How are you? I'm just fine. Howdy, folks. I did have a laugh. Can you say paleoethnobotany fast like five times? (laughs) He can't say it once. (laughs) It figures that I would end up with a moniker that sounds like something deadly. Um, What does what does it Paleo mean? ethnobotany mean? Is that like uh, okay. old-timey vegetation? Oh, that's actually, you're pretty darn close. Um, paleo is um, uh, one of the Greek root words, I, I guess you could say, for ancient. Ethno is like ethnic, human-related, and, of course, botany is plants. So what I do is I explore the world of ancient people's use of their plant community, their environment, their ancient crop systems and um, diet, as well as I've grown beyond that now to also include looking any kind of weird stuff that somebody might find when they're excavating. I've looked at ancient leather and textiles. Oh, and mummy bits and parts as well when I worked in Egypt. So it's uh, it's a bit of an odd specialization, archaeology, but it's one that I think is really cool. Yeah, it is. And if you know, people, and this is and just a good time to just plug, uh, you know, the the, the books I uh, uh, <coughs> referenced. Um, you know, a view from the core, a synthesis of the Ohio Hopewell archaeology is a, a one of the uh, what, what more 
popular, well well known books to have been um, you know, printed in yep. the last uh, tw- twenty years. You're also in Ohio Hopewell Community Organization, and uh, both of those books were edited by uh, Paul Pacheco and uh, the Ohio Hopewell Community Organization was edited by uh, you know, Bill Dan- uh, William uh, Dancy mm-hmm. as well. So, Bill Dancy um, was uh, my advisor at Ohio State. Oh, very yep. nice man. Um, yes, what you'll find with those books is about every 20 years they have a major conference to try and pull together all the archaeologists and and folks that have been working in the field, doing excavations, doing lab research, to um, try and update everyone on what they've been finding. And then they they turn that into a major publication. So I've been in the last two, I guess, and there's another one coming out. Um, so they're they're made for professionals and for the public, and I think that's critical. Yeah, it's you know for for you know just someone like me who's you know uh, very interested in this. It, it's not overly technical. But, you know, it's, I you know I I don't think most people would have difficulty reading it. it you know, I, the, I hope so. That's the the intent is to um, let the public, because archaeology belongs to everyone, and the Hopewell culture is just so fascinating. It's um, perhaps one of the most famous in North America and across the world. And it's the folks who created earthworks and burial mounds and small communities all through the river valleys of central, southern Ohio and beyond some 2,000 years ago. Very remarkable people. And we still don't know an awful lot about them, particularly about their everyday lives. And that's what um, I've been working on along with Paul Pacheco, who you mentioned, who's a professor at uh, SUNY Geneseo and Jared Burks. Um, so there's actually three of us, all trained at Ohio State, uh, with the, our the same graduate advisor, Bill Dancy, and we've been focusing systematically on sites throughout Ohio, um, trying to illuminate the everyday lives and their communities. And then lately, I've been trying to also integrate into that the world of their ritual and ceremonial lives, because that was part, very much a big part of them as well. Okay, and since we're talking about publications, you just mentioned you're going to be in another one that is scheduled to be released in April. Mm-hmm. That was the last I heard. But uh, you know, uh, Jared Burks is uh, going to be uh, with us probably about the time the books come out and you know, talk about them. But uh, you know, can, can you tell us a little bit about you know, the uh, Chillicothe Conference from uh, what three years ago and you know, what 
your chapter in that mm-hmm. new volume series is about. Okay. I certainly can. I'd be more than happy to talk about that. Paul Pacheco and Jared Burks and I have been working together as a team um, since, good heavens, 2005, I believe it was, um, in which we got together and we had all been focusing on different facets of the Hopewell in Ohio and decided to pool our resources. Paul and I are anthropology professors and we join our field school together so that we train and teach students how to do archaeology in the field, field work, by actually taking them out and doing it in the field. It's something you can't learn in the classroom. Then Jared, well, Jared, wow, Jared is probably one of the most respected remote sensing experts in North America. What that means is he uses fancy, fancy, wonderful equipment to literally read what's below the ground. Um, Very cool stuff. So he gives us a snapshot of where we'll be working. The three of us together have focused on looking at trying to find community settlements for the Hopewell Mound Builders. So we're not looking, you know, directly at the mounds. We're trying to look at their settlements in central Ohio. And we started excavating. I think we've done excavations, my goodness, every two years and then one year off. So since 2004, um, we probably train hundreds of students. We have at least 25 or 30 who join us for a month, stay at a campground, and then we excavate um, sites that are of that correct time period. And in that, my specialization is I do the photography and the general field work, but I also do the analysis of any organic material that we find. And what that entails, if somebody comes out to the site, they may kind of wonder what we're doing because we literally collect bags of dirt, soil, from fire pits and the floors of houses and trash areas. And we use a device that has water to float out from that, charred seeds and wood and nutshell. And we get fish bone. We even had fish scale, small little tiny artifacts. And I sort that under my microscope. And because I have a training in environmental studies and have just been doing it for, wow, a long time, um, I could take a look at a little tiny piece of wood charcoal from a campfire, something as little as this fingernail on your small finger, and I can look at the cell structure and tell you if they had used maple or oak or hickory. And then what I do is I take all that information and I also then recreate what the environment may have looked like there and then match it against what we find to see how the humans have used and impacted their environment, along with the crop system that the Hopewell used long before corn, beans, and squash came into the area. So that's sort of what I do. And at the Chillicothe conferences, um, what I do is I let all the professionals and the folks that are 
in the audience know, and up, I update them as to all the new discoveries that we've made in terms of their plant use, both in terms of their diet, and now also in some areas of ritual and ceremony. So that's kind of the thing that, that we do. And surprisingly, I still kind of am astonished by this, given how famous the archaeology is. It looks like we're some of the very first archaeology professors to have systematically looked at their settlements and have some of the very first data on things like what their houses looked like and what their communities were like and their everyday activities. So we're fleshing, no pun intended, that part of the, the um, record out for these ancient peoples. Okay. And in your contribution to a view to a core, uh, the core, a view from the core, um, yeah, you, know, you talk about up until about 1980, it's really not much was known about the how you know, how extensive the uh, plant usage was in Ohio. Yeah, I know it's it's surprising that uh, it took that long. Um, actually, um. You know, I still have to pinch myself over this. I was the first um, specialist in this field to really focus on doing this work. There's not a lot of us who do this. There's literally a handful of people in the world that, that do what I do or have the breadth of what I do. Because um, I've had to learn all sorts of environmental sciences, uh, geology, how to read landforms, pollen, um, early historic records of the forest communities were like, not to mention the cell structure of plants and animals, what leather looks like after it's, you know, been, you know, in a tomb for a thousand years. So there's not many folks that do this, and um, I'm... I guess the first individual to really have um, played that role for looking at the whole well. I chose them very deliberately because I like the big puzzles. And they're all a puzzle. Um, how did this remarkable culture develop and grow? Uh, why did they do the things they did? Why did they literally recreate the environment in their ritualized uh, mounds and earthworks over miles and miles. And then why did they suddenly stop doing it around, oh, AD 400 or so? So I like the big questions. And what I was able to do in my early days of, of doing this work was to document um, an unknown. Um, there had been traces found in Illinois, but not yet in Ohio an unknown early crop system that the Hopewell were farmers. Not the kind of farming we know, but growing crops in little gardens tucked in our woodlands. Some of the plants you would know, um, for example, we still have sunflower. And sunflower was an early Native American crop that was domesticated 
in North America, probably along the Arkansas and Mississippi rivers. Early squash. It looks like the little warty kind of um, gourds. So they call them gourds at, at uh, Octo- in October and November. They're little kind of um, uh, bitter flesh, but really yummy seeds, nutritious seeds. Um, and a few other plants that they were actually growing in gardens. And that was unknown until I started um, doing the work. And it's grown um, quite a bit since those early days. You know, it's, it's you know, basically you, uh, you know, with, with your involvement, you, you know, basically uh, – filled in a lot of missing gaps and what was just, you know, guesswork about Ohio's prehistory. You gave us uh, the facts of what they were uh, doing with the seeds found in the what, uh, uh, campfires and mid right. pits. Okay. And, you know, a lot of your Work has been in the Scioto and Licking Valleys in central Ohio. Uh, You know what? What was it about those two river valleys that uh, uh, seems so special to uh, ancient people? That's a great question. That's that's a really good question. Because it really is in those two major river valleys that you have the heart of the Hopewell with the most magnificent, complicated earthworks, you know, marking lunar alignments and all sorts of cool stuff. I'm, I think it's because right in those river valleys, just south of Columbus, Ohio, is where you have the landforms join that the northern part was impacted by the glacier. It has a very different topography, lay to the land, uh, different vegetation. And then right there at that area is, is you have the gentle, unglaciated hills of central and southern Ohio. So it leads to a really rich um, environment in terms of the vegetation community, rich river systems, access to flint. Now, we, for, we live in a 21st century world. We forget the kind of resource of a critical flint, their major stone tool. And not only that, I also think what's vital, and we also forget this given the world that we live in, is if you take a canoe down the Scioto River, you'll hit the Ohio River, and you can go all the way, well, up if you want into Pennsylvania, or more than likely down along down in the Mississippi River. And once you hit that, you can go to almost two-thirds of the United States, north, south, um, up and just to the edge of the west. And we know that one thing that the Hopewell did, and it was critical to – making the cool artifacts they did um, that were um, part of the rituals is trade. We've got all sorts of cool stuff, Uh, shark's teeth, barracuda jaws, shells um, from Florida, 
um, pipes made in what looks like uh, the shape of an alligator, even birds that we know are from the Everglades, copper from the north, obsidian volcanic glass from the west. So I think the rivers were critical um, also as conduits um, for um, communication with other folks, and we know the Hopewell did that, traveled. I'm pretty sure that some of the individuals from Ohio, they themselves traveled all the way down to Florida and out west. We have some pretty good evidence for that. So um, somehow with those rivers in that location, everything just came together to create such a remarkable people. Okay, and it gave us a great overview of these uh, river valleys and you know, uh, some of the sites uh, along the Scioto River, ha- uh, uh, as well as the Licking River, have also been uh, nominated for the World Heritage status. Uh, oh yes. Yeah. Uh, what's going on with that? You know, that you know, just having that prestigious kind of oh, organization. Oh, that's Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 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 what's going on uh, recently? I haven't heard any. I'm, I'm not. I was. Just, I'm also with you. I've not heard too much recently. I do keep my eye on it. I do know that the National Park Service, which uh, the National Park Service now, in the Chillicothe area in Ross County, has um, very systematically taken under their umbrella about four or five of the major earthworks and other you know surrounding sites. And they've been working very diligently. And last I heard is I believe that they're on their way to getting world heritage status for those locations and for that ancient culture. And you're right, that's a biggie. Um, That's uh, equal to the significance of the pyramids of Egypt to, um, you know, the archaeology, the history of the world. Um, And, my goodness, they've been working on that for quite some time now, I think maybe as long as a decade, to try and get that status. And I, I believe the last I've heard is they're on their road to that, but I'm not sure when it becomes official. Okay. Well, you, you, you know, you're, you know, that's where your your work is being centered, and, and, you know, that's where a lot of the, um, you know, like the... Uh, Octagon uh, Mound in Newark is located. Oh, yep, and there's that. Yeah, down. yeah, lots of cool stuff. Yeah, and then you get all you know, the uh, site mounds and uh, you know, the field where the Hopewell Mound group was located in mm-hmm. Chillicothe and uh, you know, where all the other you know, loaf mounds were located. And they're all in the river valleys. But uh, one of the most uh, intriguing places I've ever been was, you know, when I uh, you know, visited Paul's uh, you know, dig out there in the uh, was it the Balthazar uh, farm? Oh, the Balthazar farm, our, yeah, yeah, our yeah. latest. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, yeah, he, he sent on. me up. Yeah, and he sent me up. Uh, to see 
you on uh, you know the Snake Den Hill. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, you're working. Yeah. So, yeah, and and you're not really in a a river valley. You're you're up on top of what is it like a ridge? Mm -hmm. It's not like a super big hill, but uh, yeah, it's different than what's in the uh, you know uh, you know river bottoms. So what? What are you discovering on top of this ceremonial hill? Oh, that that's just so – goodness, I wish I had visuals. I could just flash and everybody how cool but, it really I, yeah, is. Just go, yeah, just go to our YouTube thing. Tomorrow. Barbara did a great yes. job of oh, putting – Oh, it's, it's really neat. Um, and it shows, by the way, it's a wonderful marriage of sort of – old knowledge from the 1800s and early 1900s where we did have some folks um, searching for these places and then this, the, the wonder of this new technology. Snake Den Mound Group is, um, you're right, it's a funny hill. It's in Pickaway County, literally just outside the, the sort of southeastern skirts of Columbus, Ohio, in a, a beautiful farming community. And uh, we've been working on the Balthazer Farm, which is a lovely, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful historic farm that's, you know, still um, farm, the farm family still runs it, working on a little tiny community of folks of the Hopewell, somewhere around, oh, 8,300. And just a mile down the road from that little community, um, out in the middle of nowhere, and you don't really notice it until you kind of come up on it, is it's a little remnant probably of the ancient mountains of the area. It may have had some minor trace of a, one of the glaciers on it some time back. But when you sort of come up on it, you realize standing on the edge that it actually has a huge high point over this flat valley. And you can see... The skyscrapers are downtown Columbus, which is over 22 miles from it, which is really cool. And as you're standing there, it's a beautiful place now. The landowners, bless their hearts, knowing the significance, are now uh, preserving it. But, it, you know, it has been farmed, and it's pretty much um, um old overgrowth farm field with a cluster of trees. And in the center of the trees, this little forest remnant, are three, what appear to be three mounds that are made up of stone, which is a little bit unusual. An early account suggested there may have been an earthwork, just a little raised, oh, maybe three, four feet high, you know, bump in the ground, a little sort of um, indentation around it, all the way around the hill. But if you go out there now, you really can't tell it except you can kind of feel in one area where there's a slight rise. But some years back, Jared went out with a device. It's called a magnetometer. And what it does is uh, it's um, this funny-looking device he trundles along the ground. It reads subtle, very subtle changes in the Earth's magnetic field underground. And so if there's an ancient fire pit, or any kind of ground disturbance, and humans are very good at doing that, particularly if it has 
something that was uh, fired, so like rock from fire pits, that sort of thing, it um, makes a little blip in the magnetic field, and he can pick that up on his device. And then he produces a map for us showing us what's below the ground, what's below our feet that you can't see with your eyes. And the work that he's done up there is absolutely amazing because you're standing in this huge, giant, empty field. There's sort of a mound over there that had been looted into in the early 1900s. And you don't realize that under your feet are other, is that been other embankments and mysterious circles and all sorts of strange things. Um, one of the weirdest, um, fascinating, is a series, a line of two, I don't know how to describe it, uh, on, on the map they look like sort of black, perfect circles, about three feet in diameter, a line of them, almost like an avenue from the bottom of the hill all the way up to the center, to the mounds. Wow. So a number of years ago, I begged the lads, Paul and Jared, I wanted to go test it. Um, so we split up our students, and I took a small group up to Snake Den, and I did the next summer as well, to excavate the odd markings that Jared had found. And it turned out to be, from what we could tell, that the odd avenue was an avenue of fire pits marching from the bottom of the hill up to the center. And then we were also able to confirm the, in the presence of a larger embankment and a smaller embankment and some of the other um, features that he had located. So it's, it, actually it's really great because Jared uses this technology to reveal what lies beneath and then Paul and I can ground truth those magnetic signatures, and that feedback helps Jared learn even better how to sort of read the device, if that makes sense. So it was absolutely fascinating what we found, um, an interior embankment um, in which they had cut a ditch down into the bedrock and had lined pavements on either side and just all sorts of mysterious so whatever they were doing up there, they weren't living up there. It was definitely some type of sacred center, but not like anything I've seen before. I kind of like that. So, so like, how how long was this uh, line of fire pits? Well, can't tell you the exact um, distance because he. You know, it's very intensive to, to do the survey he does, so he doesn't have the whole hill done. What he does have is it looks like it's going, oh, I'd have to go measure it, but it's it's definitely beyond the bottom of the hill. We don't know where it starts. Wow. Uh, yeah, no, we don't know where it starts. It's somewhere down there, <laughs> and it cuts straight up the hill, and then it goes somewhere towards the mounds. We can't quite find the end point because, um, oh, unfortunately, back in the 60s, somebody decided to put a gas line straight through the site, 
and that kind of messed things up. <laughs> but um, it's uh, let's let's put it this way: no one's ever seen anything like it. Um, I just yeah, no, my mind's eye. I just imagine, and the fire pits do not look like they were used more than once or twice. They're not like signal fires. It's almost literally like marking some kind of walkway. So I don't know. Um, I would like to go back and do some more work there. Definitely need to do more work. Okay. So when was this hill first being used for ceremonies? Well, that's a good question. We had assumed that it was Hopewell, so, you know, circa 100 B.C., A.D. 400, that's sort of the, the, the main time frame. It's got all the markings of it in terms of the embankments. We didn't find very many artifacts. It was pretty darn clean, but we did find a couple of artifacts that tend to be found with the Hopewell Mound Builder period, but, <laughs> well, this, this does happen in archaeology. When I collected a sample of the wood charcoal from one of the fire pits that we did there, one of the funny lines of the avenue, and I sent it off to a radiocarbon lab, it came back to about, oh, three or four hundred years earlier than we had anticipated. How about that one? That's wow. what I said. <laughs> I said, okay. But um, sometimes you can get wacky radiocarbon dates. There are some things that can impact it. So I'd like to get, you know, some more material to date. But yeah, that's also not too unusual. I don't know if you heard about our exciting discovery this summer. Uh, what was that? Oh. Yeah, at Ballfazer site. We found <laughs> yeah, another, just like, oh, another strange oddity. Well, we found traces of a pretty good-sized circular structure, like a house. And it's from what's called the Adena Mound Builders. It's a people's, you know, the time period just before the Hopewell. And got a radiocarbon date that also matches that. So it does look like at, you know, the settlement, we do have folks that have been living there for well over 800 or so years. And, you know, and it matches now the kind of time frame at Snake Den. And I would not be surprised the fact that I'm pretty darn sure that the folks who lived at the Ballshazer site were probably part of the group that helped build the Snake Den Mound. And they probably drew upon little settlements all through that valley system to make it and do ceremonies there. Sort of like it'd be equal to their outdoor cathedral. Um, so that's the fun part of archaeology. You never know what you're going to find, and sometimes it's it's a lot of surprises. Okay, so um, you know, the, the, at the on top of the hill, there are what three or four 
uh, there are actually stone mounds. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What? Yeah. What? Um, okay. Have the the mounds been excavated? And well, it depends. It depends on how you define excavated. <laughs> um, okay. In today's archaeology, we try not to excavate. Uh, we don't want to disturb burials unless okay. absolutely necessary, like something's about to be destroyed. Um, so we're not really um, touching those. But the problem is, back in well, the late 1800s, somebody, you know, we call it potted into it. And then in the early, early, early 1900s, I forget what the date is, uh, there was uh, archaeological excavation. or uh, Somebody did cut a trench through, um, I think, the larger main mound and found some pretty cool stuff. Uh, they did find a central burial, and uh, the burial, and unfortunately a lot of the stuff, it, we, you know, we don't know where a lot of it went, you know, ended up at, but a few pieces made it to um, what was the Ohio Historical Society in, in, in those days. And um, the central burial was covered, according to the early report, with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of geodes. You know the round rocks with the crystals in the center? Yeah, this yeah, is okay, cool. Yeah. yeah, and they found right on the top a geode bottom, and it had another top on top of it. And when they took it apart, inside were silver nuggets, nuggets of silver. How cool wow. is that? Uh, and when the cool. landowner found out about that, he made them shut down the excavation, which is actually pretty good. So I think they're largely intact, except for that early exploration. Well, are they on display? No. Um, oh. so over, um, somehow they did find, they went looking for the silver nuggets not all that long ago. And they did find some of them, so they do have some of those um, somewhere in, you know, their archives. Um, unfortunately, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, it's not uncommon for things not to have been properly kind of curated, and that does happen. But we do have the original report. There are some early photographs, which really helps and some of the silver nuggets on our left. So we do know there's burials, and the way that the, the burials are described certainly sounds like you would see for Hopewell Mound Builders. They did all sorts of fantastic things with uh, honoring their dead and uh, placing all of their ceremonial regalia within their great houses along with the dead before they burned them and covered them with mounds. So what? The cultural significance did these geodes with the little pieces of silver have for you know, the, the, the people? I, I, I just—I've never heard of That's that. That's a great question. 
I have no idea, except I can tell you the Hopewell likes shiny things. I always joke about the, like my people, they like shiny things. They like shiny things. Geodes. Oh, we also found um, they will collect weird fossils, horn coral fossils, pieces of quartz, mica, and the shiny, beautiful. We find in our sites lots of little tiny pieces of this uh, paper-thin mineral that's gold and silver from the Carolinas, uh, volcanic glass, obsidian from out west, um, pearls. They liked odd things, shiny things, and we get a sense part of it's drawn from historic native groups, part of it's drawn from the patterns we find as archaeologists, part of it's part of our imagination, and that's okay too, as long as we can find a way to, to explore that. Get a sense that in the building of the mounds, in the rituals surrounding that, in the burial of the dead, that they're sort of reenacting the origins of their world, their origin myths, their creation myths. Um, water seemed to be significant. Um, we find patterns of three. So their burials, their tombs, there's features cut into the ground, the world of the underworld, um, stuff done on the surface, the world of this world, symbols of the overworld, if you will, of the sky, um, even animal symbolism. And the remains of animals are interesting. Ducks, um, bears, Raptors, hawks, and eagles. And I, you know, I, I tell my students, think about what these animals do, particularly bears and ducks and some other animals they feature. What makes them so special? Well, other than the fact that bears can eat you, and that's pretty powerful. You know, uh, birds, ducks, for example, fly through the air. They land on water, this world, and they dive underwater, the underworld. Bears, they den, hibernate during winter, come out from their dens, and they also like um, uh, water. We actually have some images of uh, cut mica that look like bears swimming in water from a Hopewell site. So their world was imbued with um, all sorts of cool ways of trying to understand their universe around them, and I think that's what they're reenacting when they do their ceremonial sites. So that's my sort of take on it. Makes sense. Well, I, the thing is, though, even within that, there's so many variations. It's like there's major themes that you'll see, similarities of symbols, similarities of resources and things they're using from valley to valley, but then each cluster of communities then puts their own twist on it, their own variation. So what's um, fascinating as an archaeologist with this culture is getting this sense of what drives their view of the world and then realizing that there's also this incredible diversity in how they explored that how they made symbols of that if that made sense okay and 
you know, with the um, you know, unusual find of the geodes and the silver and one of the stone mounds, what was you know, like a, a stone mound uh, uh, reserved for, you know, like the most important shaman of the community or, you know, something like it, It's, you know, um, different yeah, from the uh, earthen mounds. I think um, most of the mounds uh, for the Hopewell um, and, and for their predecessors, the Adina, um, what I don't think a lot of folks realize is, at least for the Hopewell, what they would do is inside an earthwork, for example, they would often have a large wooden building or a series of small wooden buildings. That's where the dead were taken into to process, and they were actually then buried within the building. And then something triggered the ceremonial closure of the building, so they would bring in all of their shamans, ceremonial garb and accoutrements. They would place them inside. They would burn the building. Then they would bring in basketload after basketload of dirt to make the mountain, sometimes with a gravel kind of edge to it. That's the norm. But we do have a few sites in which um, instead of doing that, they created the mound out of stone. And I have a sneaky suspicion that it may be simply the matter that on at least on the top of Snake Den, that's pretty much all they had. Um, it may be just simply there wasn't enough dirt there okay. to serve the purpose for embankments and mounds. Um, although I do have to say, I did joke that the, the ancient peoples who, who created what we know as the Snake Den Mound Group did seem to like to carry around lots of rocks. Because not only did they use them to make the um, mounds, but when we excavated one of the ancient fire pits, and I've never seen this before, (laughs) they had apparently rolled in a giant granite boulder, probably dropped from the glacier, big round granite boulder, which Lord knows how much that would have weighed, and then they built the fire pit around and on top of the boulder, done very deliberately. So I'm not sure what they were doing up there, but something was going on with with the rocks. Lord knows. I don't know, but it's quite intriguing. So, so do, do you know when the... Henge was built that encircles the top of the hill. The, you're talking about the our, our, that avenue, that line. No, no, no. The, the uh, ditch around the top of the hill. Okay, no. Uh, we did uh, put a small trench. We did verify that there was a ditch and embankment there. Unfortunately, I didn't find any. Um, traces of wood charcoal. To do good, pretty precise uh, dating, we need some type of, like, uh, the best bets, like 
burn wood or nutshell for radiocarbon dating. And I didn't find a lot of that up there, so I couldn't get a date on that. That's why I'd like to go back and do some more test explorations because I'm sure there's something there that we should be able to get to do that. Well, it's the you know couple hours we were up there. It was really something. Yeah, just uh, unique. It, it was like in, in a category all by itself, and you know, I know isn't it a special feeling up there? Yeah, it, it really is, and the homeowners were. You know, very pleasant to. Oh, they're wonderful yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah, that whole family. Um, they are so excited. <laughs> they're so excited uh, to have us up there. And one of them is a school teacher. So at the end of one season, they brought all the uh, all the kids up. So that was a lot of fun. And once they found out um, how significant it is, they stopped farming it and they're now protecting it. So that's really, really fantastic. Are there plans to have it open for, you know, just uh, people to you know, go up there and enjoy the ambience at some point? I don't. I don't think so. We haven't really talked to them about that. Um, it's kind of hard to get to there. It's a little bit sort of out of the way. It's on private property, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what their plans are. It would be a nice candidate for something like the Archaeological Conservancy, which uh, gets land uh, donated or buys the land that has important sites on it to um, put aside for um, saving for the future. That'll be up to the landowners. So um, I'm sure those conversations will happen, you know, over the years. We really just started the work to take a look at what's up there. Okay. And when, when um, oh, you know, people start going to, uh, you know, BarbaraDeLong.com and YouTube tomorrow to, you know, look at the uh, – Images that you know she put together for the uh, videos. Um, you know that they you know will be able to see the um, map that you sent of mm -hmm. uh, Snake Den that uh, Jared did with his like you know looks like a, uh, looks like a lawnmower really, but. Um, yeah, you know, you know, there are trees is, up Mark there. Is, yeah, sure. Mark, is, is that ground-penetrating radar? Is that what you're talking about? Oh, that's an excellent question. Hmm, okay. We've used both of those. Um, ground penet I think most folks have at least heard of ground-penetrating radar, or they can imagine what it is. And it's the same thing they do in submarines, only it's pointed down towards the ground. So it's sending down radar mm -hmm. signals. And yes, indeed, Jared does use that technology, and it does it does work, but it's um, it's not very detailed for the kind of thing that we do. 
What he did at Snake, um, Snake Den is the other major technology that, uh, that we use, actually even more than ground-penetrating radar. And it's a device that literally reads the very subtle magnetic field in the ground, if that makes sense. You know, like when you hold the compass and it points north? Mm -hmm. So it's sort of reading that magnetic field. And any time it comes up against a pile of rock or a fire pit or something, it changes the magnification of the magnetic signature. And that's what he's doing. So it's a similar kind of concept. It's just picking up on a different signal. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And we find that it actually works better in Ohio soils, um, sometimes in ground penetrating radar. Although, you know, we use both. In fact, I just uh, used ground penetrating radar three weekends ago up here in northern Pennsylvania. I work with the museum, uh, Susquehanna River Ecological Center. And when you mentioned Iroquois, we're looking at some pre-Iroquois sites. And so we tested ground-penetrating radar up in the soils in this area, and it actually worked really well. So it just depends on the nature of the ground and the kind of archaeology. Uh, Before was that answer your question? Oh, sorry. I yeah, I... <laughs> yeah, sorry, the, the only... <laughs> Explain to folks all the new technologies that archaeologists have. Um, well, yeah, and the other thing really I was changing gonna, our, our world in the way that we work. And that's kind of cool. Have you have you utilized any lidar as well? Ooh, that lidar! I love lidar. Oh, because yeah. it's pretty. Um, lidar <laughs> is. <laughs> it is. Have you seen the maps? It's got. I love color. It's got turquoise in it. <laughs> I, I had a colleague who works in. Um, he's part of the National Geographic LiDAR project for his Mayan sites in Guatemala. Now he's Google over his map. LiDAR is um, shooting a form of laser from um, the belly of a plane along the ground surface. And you get beautiful, beautiful maps of the surface, and you can manipulate it to take out modern buildings. Yes, uh -huh. we have. Jared uses LIDAR. In fact, uh, he has this ongoing project with using LIDAR where he has rediscovered what were thought to be lost earthworks and found new earthworks that people didn't know existed. So there's a big boom era in Hopa archaeology in Ohio. Ohio right now is just jumping with all sorts of cool stuff because this technology is allowing us to find things, to see things without having to go and, and excavate, which you don't want to do that um, unless you have a really good reason for it. And yes, LIDAR, he, we've used it. It works beautifully to uh, illuminate even little tiny remnants left of earthworks. Yeah, it just seems that it would be 
utilizing something like that would help you to pick out mountains, among other things. It does beautifully. Um, and as I said, uh, what Jared does is he looks at the old records. And thank goodness we have several major documents from the 1800s of surveyors that were out. Their hobby was looking for mounds. And he looks at the old records, finds where they might be on the modern landscape, and then they go out and they use LIDAR to see if they can find you know, traces of them. Then once that he does, if he finds what he thinks is it, he goes out with the permission of the landowner if he can, and then does the magnetometry to see if there's anything left under the ground. Then we come along on occasion and excavate to ground truth. So it's a really brilliant partnership. Oh, yeah, I would think so. I live in Connecticut, and um, my husband and I did a lot of work with the stone chambers and stone walls that are here. And mm -hmm. we we did find that someone had done LIDAR on a lot of the area here to sort of help trace where all of the stone walls were, but we weren't able to get a hold of, of any of the oh, material. Oh, I didn't that know was, that. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I think University of Connecticut um, has them, and it, this was done like maybe 10, 20 years ago. And, wow, um, that's early days. The technology evolved dramatically just in the last 10. Wow. And, and you know, we, we thought often that, you know, if we had maps like that, that we would be able to even find probably more chambers. But uh, he unfortunately passed away, so we kind of, that project got put to bed. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I understand that. Yeah, I was not um, going to go trekking through the woods alone. <laughs> no, well, imagine trying to do that in a place like uh, the rainforest of Central America. Oh, uh, yeah. As I said, I have a young colleague, Damien Markin. Uh, he's a uh, um, professor in, in my department, an archaeologist, and he's part of that really big, famous National Geographic project that they've got going on. They had it on the National Geographic channel where they're using LIDAR in the dense rainforest uh, in Guatemala and are finding out that there's tons, thousands of Mayan communities and settlements hidden under that canopy they didn't know about. Oh, so yeah. LIDAR is just just really changing everything. So and it's it's really it is really neat to look at because it's like really pretty. <laughs> that counts for me. Like pretty archaeology. It is pretty. <laughs> and and you know, when uh, people look at you know, the map Jared did of Snake Den, uh, you know they do see trees. Um, on like the western side of the hill, but, mm -hmm. uh, you, you know when you know, you do your paleo ethnobotany work, mm -hmm. uh, you know, are, are you finding that there were like those uh, trees, you know, that were really plentiful in the area, or is it more of like a uh, like the you know, midwestern prairie kind of uh, mm, grass. A, it, it, like, mm, that's what, a very uh, good question. 
because uh, I've gotten into a bit of controversy with some of my other colleagues about this. Um, what I do is I look at the landform, the slope, the moisture. I also have access to early historic accounts of, um, you know, a trees. They use trees um, to make uh, surveyor marks to plot off property lines. And I can tell you that the vast majority of the landform across Ohio, particularly in that area, was incredibly dense forest. Now, there were areas in some, a few areas in Ross County and others where there were little pockets of prairie, but they were, they were largely not the kind of prairie people think of, like a dry prairie. They're more kind of a swampy, marshy prairie, and there were a few dry prairie areas. But the vast majority of the places that have the Hopewell earthworks, such as the Hopewell Mound Group and other places, those had been incredibly huge, dense forest, oaks and hickories and walnuts and maples and ashes, depending on, you know, the moisture of the ground. And so I have to constantly remind my colleagues and the regular folk out there that what also makes the Hopewell archaeology incredible is before they built these massive earthworks, the Hopewell Mound Group, spans over a mile in extent, they had to go and cut down a lot of trees. So they were doing massive modifications to their environment. And then if you want to use these areas, you're going to have to keep them, the trees from coming back. And some of the sites, they're pretty confident, have alignments to, you know, 19-year cycles of the moon on the horizon. That's a Newark Earthworks. Solar alignments. And none of that would work if you had a forest in the way. So they were actually doing some pretty big, massive cutting down of trees and controlling their forest environment. That's something that uh, I've you know, been arguing for years is it's – a total ecosystem that they've been kind of very deliberately, very in very sophisticated ways, um, manipulating and using to their advantage. Um, did that answer your question? Yeah. I forgot yeah, what it so, is. Yeah. So snakes, uh, uh, like, snakes uh, and would have uh, had a big forest. Oh, uh, okay. Cool. I, I I I don't know. I just you know just ask the expert. I'm just uh, uh, you know just wondering what if the trees were pretty similar to what they are today or you know it's just just, just well, question. Well, I'd have to go look up the records, but I'm going to guess up on that dry hill. You're going to have a lot of oak, red oaks, mm-hmm. hickory, shagbark, hickory, chestnut. Ah, used to be a beautiful tree before we lost them. Chestnut, red oaks, hickories are going to be probably the biggies. How's that for off the cuff? Okay, that's perfect. Now I'm going to have to go do some work to make sure I'm right. Actually, I think if I remember correctly that I did identify. Yeah, I did. I am correct. I identified the wood charcoal that we sent off for radiocarbon dating 
from one of the fire pits, and it was hickory. Okay. There you go. What what kind of uh, boats did they build? What kind of, pardon? Boats. Boats? They had to have boats or canoes. Oh, you mean like canoes. Did they do the birch bark? Were they hollowing out um, logs? Yes, actually... And and we can say that because oh they have we have uncovered not a lot but there's a couple of wooden canoes that they have found like sitting at the bottom of lakes and rivers when they dredge them. Um, yeah, they're the classic large tree hollowed out canoe that you know you kind of see in historic versions with you know Native Americans. Yeah, that's what they were using. And from those things. Um, they would go, well, all, all across their, their known world. The cool thing about the hollowed-out canoes is if you, you know, reach a place where the water's too low, you can just pick it up and carry it for a while. It, it, but, Barbara, did, 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 did you hear Deanne talking about, uh, you know, hickory was one of the samples of uh, – you know, carbon found in one of the pits. So, yeah, there there is another tie-in to a future show, our barbecue show coming up at the end of January. Hickory <laughs> smoked ribs. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. <clears throat> yes, Mark is getting very little, diverse. Yeah, yeah, that's a uh, that's a shameless plug for uh, <laughs> an upcoming show. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, but um. Uh, um you know, since you know we're talking about you know, uh, you know some cooking, and you know, uh, you know you did mention the different gourds and squashes, and uh, you know all, all the other like you know fancy Latin terms like the uh, like the one that sounds like a cucumber type, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know Latin name uh, for one of the squashes. Like, you know, how, like, how was the, you know, people's nutrition, if they're eating that along with, you know, some of the fish and shellfish and, mm-hmm. you know, the I, game, I, yeah, were they what? pretty uh, hey. healthy? Pardon? Uh, yep. or, is that a pretty healthy diet? Oh, my heavens. They were about as healthy as you could get. That's about the most perfect diet. Um, they had really rich, starchy grains. In fact, one of their crops, uh, a keno, kenopodium, mm-hmm. goosefoot, is cousin to, I'm sure you guys have had, I'm, I'm looking in, there it is. I'm, I have it right there. I'm looking in my pantry. Kenwa? You've had kenwa, right? They probably uh, had Jerusalem artichokes too. Yes, they had that, and they had Q U I. I never pronounce this right. Q U I N O A. Quinoa, quinoa. Oh, quinoa. I like it. From, yeah, I mean, it's a new grain that that's very popular. They had that, so they had really really healthy grains. Um, sunflower seed. They had those really yummy squashes. They also had huge amount of, of hickory and walnuts, hickory nuts, hazelnuts, walnuts. 
deer, healthy meat, you know, um, uh, very lean meat, deer, turkey, those are the big ones, tons of raspberries and blackberries, and I would have to say it was probably one of the healthiest, most diverse diets for any ancient peoples anywhere. And we can tell that because um, if you take a look at their skeletons, from you know the the few burials where they did have complete skeletons, they're very very healthy. Uh, their teeth um, um, are they're worn from you know pretty gritty diet, but they don't have cavities. Uh, they're tall and you know they're very very healthy. Uh, certainly much more so than in his early historic or late prehistoric times when they ate a lot of corn, which and um, wasn't good for their teeth. So, yeah, I'd say it was about as good as a diet as you could get. Do you have any um, idea as to what the hierarchy was amongst them? I mean, were they, um, sh- did they have shamans? Did they have leaders? Did they have chiefs? Oh, Is there any way you question. can tell? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's Hmm, that that my dear is the crux of the question. <laughs> okay, here's what I can tell you. One of the things that makes them so interesting and so remarkable, so puzzling, so wondering for archaeologists is this: in almost every culture where you have such massive monumental architecture, meaning all the earthworks that they built and their great houses. In almost every other culture that has that, you have have and have nots, right? You have uh-huh. king and queen, uh, a chief, somebody to direct things. What's remarkable about the Hopals, they did not have that. We can tell from their burials and their communities that they did not have folks that were inheriting a status or that type of, I don't want to say formal leadership, but codified kind of legal, political leadership, if that makes sense. Uh But they weren't totally like... Uh, tribal society egalitarian where everybody had the same status either. There were definitely individuals, older males, and are you ready for this one? Some older females that clearly played some very special role. And yeah, I think you put your finger on it. I think that they were shamans. But more than just that, because if you think about it, Somewhere, somebody had to have the plan. How are we going to build this thing? Right? They have all these geometric shapes, circles and squares that cover 40 acres. Uh, and, uh, the Newark earthwork, the octagon and lines to a 19-year cycle for when the moon comes up on the horizon. Right? <laughs> I was... Wonder about the guy who had to stand there for 19 years to figure out where it came up on that, you know, up on that hill over there. Um, what if it was um, really cloudy that day too? You can tell that people from 
you know, communities spread far and wide would come together to, you know, build earthworks and do ceremonies. How was that orchestrated? Who orchestrated that? So, you know, those are the big questions. We get a sense that there's a complexity to the culture that's sort of between and betwixt what we would think of as a classic tribal society. Although they were tribal, there's also, you know, another element going on. And they're not quite like chiefdoms. So part of the puzzle, part of the mystery, and part of the frustration for archaeologists is, is trying to get a sense of how this whole thing works. And that's where a lot of the new research, um, by the way, is going on with folks that are trying to pull together understanding from their symbolism and their rituals and ceremony with those type of folks trying to pull together the other parts of their world. So that's right now, that's the big thing is trying to figure that out. But yes, I can tell you that there were some individuals, usually, as I said, older folks, largely older males, but there's some interesting older female burials that were buried with intriguing things that, you know, they were some type of ritual leader. Um, Leanne, we've got a question. Um, somebody's called in. Can you take a cool. question? Okay, hold on a second. This is Marjorie. Marjorie, you're on the air. Hey, I was just wondering, do any, are there any old um, <laughs> are there any old emeralds that are health that create health that are healthy? <laughs> Any emeralds. old, any old emeralds that are healthy that I can use to use for health to heal. Emeralds? Yes. As in the gemstone. Yes, ancient gemstones. Um. Well, I've never um, heard of emeralds being a healing stone. To be honest okay, with you, uh, the emeralds I'm familiar with are tend to be found. In the mines in Colombia and Ecuador, and then there's some famous mines in Egypt. I don't know. I do not know. Do they put the healing? I don't think um, Native Americans, at least I've never encountered, where Native Americans up in northern North America had or used emeralds. I do know down in Central America and South America they did. What about uh, emeralds in caskets that heal the spirit? Was that back in the ancient times? Um, not that I know of. Uh, well, let's put it this way. Not in North America, but I worked in Egypt. And as you know, um, Egyptians loved their jewelry. And certainly emeralds were a really, 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 really important stone and there was a very famous emerald mine down in the southern deserts of Egypt where the Egyptians would often um, get um, their emeralds, the same emeralds that Cleopatra herself wore so that one I do know about, I don't know of any real usage in in North America Does that answer your question uh, Marjorie? Hello. I guess she's going. Uh, um, oh, it's, appreciate uh, you know, calling in. Hope, you know that um, 
you know, help help to um, answer her question about healing. But uh, yeah, I think Mark, there's another caller. Oh, okay. Uh, bring on caller two. We're uh, uh, Deanne is getting people, um, you know, Curious. really thinking. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Hold on. Okay, caller, you're on the air with Deanna. Uh, yes, thank you very much for, for taking my call. And I have a question from doctor uh, that, you know, uh, is that true that they found a new tomb and new, uh, you know, different area in the uh, uh, in Egypt, uh, Egypt, and oh, would you not think? But you mean Arabic? Sure, sure. I'm Awi. Yes, they just found oh, a new tomb. Like, yeah. Sorry, I, folks, that was my bad peasant yeah. Arabic. Um, I haven't yeah, seen yeah. the details yet, but they just they announced it. What he's talking about is um, goodness, my brain just fried on me. Oh, they found <laughs> a tomb. Down right, right. Other Egypt, I think. Of yeah, uh, it's yeah, not a royal tomb, uh, but it's of um, one of the regions where would be you know noble family. And I'm not seeing any info yet, so I've only seen I think probably what you've seen that's shown up on um, uh, in YouTube. the news, and it's shown up on my archaeology feeds. So isn't that exciting, right. though? Yes, but I am afraid to say because of what they find, and there must be possibly put a super virus in that area. By the time they come and the people, we are soon going to hit with super virus. What do you think of that, please? Oh, my goodness. Hang on. I'm, I'm having this. Hang on a second. You two. Um, yeah, dear audience, that, those are my uh, felines that decided to fight in the middle of everything. So I have a bad time. Uh, 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 okay, we, so had... I didn't catch what he was saying. Yeah, um, so, so he I said something about the virus. The virus? Yes, I said super virus. Super virus, because, you know, these things are were there for so many years, thousands of years. Oh, you okay. Know? And maybe they also put a, a super virus for the future, they know that somebody is going to find their tomb and etc. Maybe they did not want it to be disturbed. Maybe they wanted to be there uh, until end of the uh, until planet crashes. Maybe uh, because of we go there and you know uh, right. try to be no uh, find them and then they might put a super virus there and then a uh, super virus will be in f- less than a few months, maybe kills billions uh, of humanity. What do you think of that, please? I don't think so. <laughs> I um, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I, I don't. In I've I've worked in that type of environment down in Luxor, where it gets up to 120 degrees in the afternoon, and it's yes. hot and it's extremely dry. And viruses would not live long in that type of environment. So I suspect that, you know, if there are viruses um, in that area, which there, there would be, you know, with ancient peoples around, most of them would not survive for a long length of time. 
Ironically, the place you should be more worried about is up in the Arctic Circle, up in uh, the northern latitudes, where in Russia, Siberia, they still have anthrax in the ground, and there are still burials of soldiers up in uh, northern Canada and Alaska who died from the Spanish flu in 1918. In those areas, with the weather conditions, that actually, ironically, may be more dangerous than down in the desert areas. So I suspect that uh, a super virus down in the Egyptian tombs would be less of a factor. Does that make sense? Uh, okay. Uh, I mean... Uh, you know, you know, right now, uh, the state of the world is very much in chaos. From yes, Paris is burning, Paris is burning, and yep. United States has its own uh, problems, as we know, fires in United States, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and ha massive uh, hail in Italia. Uh, killed a lot, uh, some uh, uh, 10, 15 people, range yep. and destroyed a lot of cars because it was hail side of the uh, Gulf. Right, flooding and floods in Europe. Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. Flood. You have seen it, Italy. I mean, all, all. So, so, so. You know, even uh, that can bring uh, some kind of uh, super uh, flu. Uh, with itself, because yep. uh, don't you think so? Yes, actually, the one thing that I um, have told my students, I do, I do teach a course called um, Anthropology and World Problems, and I talk about climate change. One thing I do let folks know about is there's going to be unexpected consequences of climate shift, which is happening. It's not a myth. It's happening. And one of those consequences is indeed that pests and um, illnesses are going to become much more common. And, um, right. you know, we see it, I see it with my seed lines who are bringing in many more ticks this year than ever before. Pollen, allergies, and viruses. So, yes, you are correct. The world's going to be a very different place with, I think, consequences that a lot of people don't realize. Absolutely. I'm not sure I mean, with the current folks in place what's going to happen with that. But it is something to be aware of. Yes. Uh, we have seen right now Spain has the first domestic deal, uh, dengue case in Spain, and we have France, first time uh, reported additional indigenous uh, cases of, the, uh, again, dengue uh, virus, and, and in United States, uh, we oh. have Zika cases of viruses, uh, uh, also in California, we have uh, Newcastle disease. Is confirmed. So yep. I mean, we have other diseases too. That if you go to globalincidentmap.com, globalincidentmap.com, you should be able. There are so many categories, 
amp from amber alert to disease outbreak drug uh, in in uh, interdiction map to uh, gang activities and many other uh, things but anyway uh, the bottom line is yes i strongly believe that uh, with uh, you know this kind of diseases that uh, uh, this is outbreaks uh, around the globe and Latin America and USA uh, is going to finally we are going to go code red in all the world. What do you think, please? Well, I say it's going to be very interesting in the future, and um, I feel bad for the youngsters of today because the world's going to be a very different place for them. Well. Yeah, because uh, if you go to globalincidentmap.com uh, and push outbreaks, uh, and we see right now India have a swine flu, uh, 40 people, uh, and also uh, uh, 47 cases of new ca- new flu virus, and dengue outbreak is also in, in India. So it seems this dengue and many other things is getting. Uh, all over the world, so swine flu, dengue, and I keep putting it. Pakistan again, uh, 63 people died from dengue cases. So I mean, wow, or well, Newcastle, <clears throat> this is it. I, I wanna, so I mean, you can I keep want, going. Good, good. I want I want to thank you so much for calling, but there are other people that we have to pull on. So thank you for calling. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Wow, two two callers. Uh, <laughs> it and um, you know, yeah, yeah. So, so we had another caller. Yeah, they who, dropped uh, off, unfortunately. Oh, so yeah. Oh. So get back okay, to but, topic, uh, whatever it was. It's amazing what I can converse on. <laughs> like, wait, what? Uh, from emeralds to um, unknown viruses. Cool. No, it, it's uh, and both, both questions were uh, v- very interesting. They just a- add a lot of uh, depth to the uh, mm-hmm. a variety of topics that have been discussed tonight. But, um, Dean, um, you know we're uh, approaching uh, thirty minutes left, and I, I'll, I'll try not to start with the goodbyes yet. But uh, <laughs> you know, you also uh, are working at the, the uh, uh, Susquehanna Archaeological uh, uh, Research Center, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we don't want to uh, you, know, uh, you know just uh, j- just briefly mention them. You know, we want. Uh, to give them, uh, you know, a nice solid plug since you're on the board of directors and you're up there uh, uh, doing some uh, gr- great research as well. And, you know, when uh, you know, we were talking a little bit about, uh, you know, this uh, a museum, you're talking about, oh, you know, we have a lot of... Uh, Iroquois information, and that's going to be uh, discussed in a few weeks. But you're also talking about this uh, mis- uh, mystery of 
Um, again, kind of like the Hopewell people in southern New York, northern Pennsylvania at one point. It, but, <laughs> but there's kind of like this uh, gap about who, who was there from the Hopewell to the Iroquois. Uh, that's a mystery. Can, can, can you tell us a little bit about uh-huh. that situation? That's another biggie question. <laughs> um, wow, that, that's even less well-known. You're talking about the Susquehanna River Archaeological Center, um, which is a nonprofit in Waverly, New York. It's a town that straddles the border with Pennsylvania. Um, and it's literally tucked between where the Chemung meets the Susquehanna River, very famous area. And um, surprisingly, there's some very famous sites in the area that were documented in the 1920s and 30s, but literally no professional has taken a look at that region. And it's in that area that somehow the folks that we call the Iroquois today evolved or were settled, we still don't even know the origins of, of the Iroquois. And so I'm finding this is a whole new archaeology that I have to learn, and even as equally fascinating. Um, it's a, a beautiful museum that was started by a group of um, avocational archaeologists who wanted to save the archaeology of their region, and they're wonderful folks. Um, there are traces of the influence of the Hopewell in, you're right, in New York, Pennsylvania. Um, a few burial mounds, some unique artifacts. But we know so little, even less about the archaeology of this kind of area, less than we know in Ohio, that it, it's not really um, well known or well connected you know, the peoples of 2,000 years ago, um, how they changed, how their culture shifted over time until they became what's recognized or known as the famous um, Iroquois. So what we're trying to do right now is to find and locate the sites that were noted in 1920s and 30s, See if if they still exist. There's a lot of changes on the land. Um, See if we can uh, take a look at them. That's what the ground penetrating radar that we used a couple weekends ago was all about. One of the sites uh, had some um, early burials from 1550 A.D., and we don't want to disturb those, but we wanted to see if, you know, if there's anything left or if we had the right site, which we do. And ironically, um, it's in somebody's backyard. So, you know, that ancient myth of building your house on an Indian burial ground. <laughs> 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 it actually had done. Um, so just like in Ohio, um, we're trying to uh, take a look at the old records and see what's still there today, and then bring modern technologies to bear to answer the question. But that's another good one. That's another huge controversy. Who are the Iroquois in terms of 
aware they came from. Their culture is so remarkable and so unique. We, we have a group that we work with, this, uh, the Seneca, um, um, and, you know, their oral traditions are that the Iroquois came from the south, and there's some archaeologists think that they developed in place up in New York itself, and so it's still a big mystery. Okay. No, so, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it, uh, very interesting, and you know, I think uh, I'm sh- sure Mike is going to be able to elaborate on that in a few weeks. But uh, uh, yeah, so you're going to be talking or talking about the Iroquois in a few weeks. That'll uh, be a good opportunity yes. to ask the folks about where. You know, where did the Iroquois come from? And I'll be curious to see what the answers would be. No, no I'll, I'll get the uh, archive of the show uh, to you, and uh, you can uh, uh, listen to it, to, uh, you know, put, put you in touch with Mike and you know, he can tell cool. you about his... You know, you know Mark, his, they, his, they've, discovered yeah. a, they've discovered a site in in Gloucester County, Virginia, that is the um, main site of the Powhatan tribe. And um, they've discovered several long houses and mm-hmm. a number of other things. It's right along a, a waterway there, and apparently it's it's huge. I, I have found, because I'm, I'm like a Midwest gal, Ohio gal, that I didn't really... Uh-huh. Even though I've been living in, you know, eastern Pennsylvania for, oh, 30-some <laughs> years, oh, I, I just didn't quite pay attention to the to the early history. I mean, I sort of knew it in this area, but I have to tell you, I've been reading and, and studying the early, 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 early contact period when, you know, folks from Europe and Africa and Asia came over and made the first contact. And this whole area, Connecticut, um, New York, Pennsylvania, Virginia, West Virginia, is absolutely fascinating with um, that the early contact and the, the early accounts of what Native American societies were like and the impact you know, of the two worlds colliding. It's really neat stuff. I've gotten really fascinated by it. And I, I'm sure the with you know the arrival of you know the Europeans, you know that causes some migrations to happen. So oh, you know, lots that, of that, I don't uh, think that, people realize how many how much even I didn't realize they, they were moving all over the place. The Iroquois, particularly, where it was nothing to them to just you know hop on the Susquehanna and go all the way down south or up north or go out west. They were doing a lot more moving and moving of folks all over the place. Um, and then when you've got the European cultures impacting them, that increased even more so. Yeah, it just uh, makes things more interesting, more complicated. Uh, maybe doing some of the DNA tests is going to reveal that, uh more astounding information that people just didn't realize. It's mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 it really uh, you know, it sounds really interesting. And is, so, you know, what 
you know, are you, uh, you know, putting on display, like, you know, some of this information that is mm-hmm. just coming to light now? It's a, uh, it, uh, that can be seen uh, if you just, you know, go, go to the museum mm-hmm. and uh, you can just tour oh, yes. the... And okay. we've been, let's see, actually for the past three years now, so... <laughs> So I do the excavations in Ohio. I'm just crazy. I do the excavations in Ohio with Paul Pacheco, and then I come back here, and <laughs> and then I drive up north for an hour and 20 minutes and help direct uh, the excavations <laughs> up with the museums. Yeah, I know. It's so crazy, like two field season every year. But for the past three years, we have been um, excavating a, uh, a site that is currently um, it's being impacted by construction. Um, uh, there's um, housing um, going in, and the landowner has been uh, very generous in working around us, bless his heart, letting us do our test excavations. And we do have those materials and radiocarbon dates and all the cool stuff we've got on display. And it's at the um, Susquehanna River Archaeological Center, which is right in the middle of uh, the downtown of Waverly, New York. You can't miss it. Waverly is a really cool town, and um, uh, it's free. And uh, they've got hours pretty much throughout the weekend on Saturday. And they've got a massive collection. Um, What happened is two gentlemen, two very elderly gentlemen, who had massive, huge collection of Native American artifacts from... You know, farm fields and things like that, wanted a place to have their collection kept intact and used for the public and for school kids. And that's sort of how the whole thing got going. So it's a pretty cool place to visit. And um, uh, we just got uh, donations to go turn the upstairs into labs. So we're in the process of doing that. And it's pretty cool. Okay, so uh, Waverly is right on the Pennsylvania-New York border, and when it's about yep, it's ha- um, half, just halfway. east of Elmira and uh, Corning. That'll okay. help you place it. Okay, so yeah, and, uh, and it looks like what Binghamton is about equidistant. Yep, to, you're to right. Binghamton's about. Let's see, forty-minute drive, I think, directly east of there. So, and if it looks like you're Google, you're Google mapping it, and if you take a look, it's tucked right in between where two mighty rivers come together, and that point of land has so much archaeology on it. You can't throw a stick without hitting archaeology, um, and surprisingly, no one's really looked at um, investigating or preserving much of it, and that's kind of what we're doing. Okay, and, and those, uh, uh, you, know, you know, people read uh, you know, some of Bill Romaine's works. Uh, mm-hmm. He really em- emphasizes, you know, the confluences were a major, like, Power centers for ancient peoples. Mm-hmm. 
So it's not an, it's not surprising what you're saying is happening in New York when he's you know, writing about his finds in the Ohio River Valley. Yep, it's the same situation. You've got two mighty rivers coming together, very um, impressive landforms because you've got the rivers down cutting. You have these big hills towering over mm-hmm. and a spur of land that's tucked right where the rivers come together. And uh, it it's, was famous in early historic times, and it looks like that continued into the ancient past as well. Okay. And another uh, interesting project you've worked on was the uh, analyzing the last meal of the Mastodon. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, we, uh, we need to hear that. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was goodness. That was yeah, my dinosaurs very, are always very first year as a brand new professor at Bloomsburg University. Um, I, literally, I think it was that very first semester, December 1989. All right, I'll folks will tell you how old I am. Um, I get a phone call. It's in December just before Christmas, and it's from a friend of mine, an archaeologist. Who's, he's one of the Brad Lepper, one of the state archaeologists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he says, hey, says, I've been excavating an Ice Age mastodon, a cousin to the woolly mammoth. And I'm like, okay. It's a landowner in the middle of a golf course in a boggy kind of wet ground in winter decided to put in a, a water hazard and scooped up the tusks and skull of a mastodon and called him out and he says and I've been excavating it and I think I have part of his intestine and stomach content still preserved I'm like okay (laughs) he says would you like to look at them I'm like what are you kidding yes so believe it or not he shipped me parts of what looks to have been the last meal that our 25-year-old mastodon male ate some 11,500 years ago. And what makes it cool is the big guy ended up in, his body ended up in the bog because, well, some ancient Indian snuck up and killed him. He was butchered. They placed his body, what was left of it, in a, down in the bottom of a cold, shallow glacial bog to preserve the meat. I know it sounds weird, but it does work. And so we forgot where they put him. Like, Uncle Joe, where'd you put the big guy? <laughs> Shoot, I don't remember. And we found him 11,000-some-odd years later. And I analyzed what he had eaten and what the environment was like, and it was very surprising because he seemed to favor Things like, I know this is going to sound really cute, swamp buttercup. So, yeah, so here's a big mast on eating buttercup and all the kind of really cool swampy plants that are growing and water lilies and all that sort of stuff. And then what made him really famous? Are you ready for this one? What's yeah. that? Yeah, not only did I get the plant stuff, we also got living bacteria from his gut. 
We had a microbiologist send a sample to a microbiologist, and he found bacteria in it that only grows in sort of animals' intestines, and they did DNA on it. And it's at that time was the oldest living thing associated with a distinct mammal or something like that. So that ended up in the National Geographic and pretty much all over the world at that point. How cool is that? Science yes, rocks. Very cool. Yeah, that that was neat. So just the image of this big, giant, like, you know, three-ton massive beast standing in a shallow, you know, glacial bog, chewing down water lilies and grasses at the edge of the swamp until somebody snuck up on him. That that one was just like really really neat to do. Okay, yeah. Uh, uh, any kind of dinosaur stories or uh, welcome on Nightlight. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's very very cool. So, um, okay, you know what. <coughs> Are some of the new directions that you know Iroquois studies are going into, or hope well? You're in the center of this. You know what's the uh, you know like ancient plant studies. You know what you know. You know we're uh, kind of winding down. Uh, you know what, what? What are the new directions? Uh, you know these kind of uh, studies are going in. Okay, um, I think the newest direction, which is you're going to see is being used pretty much worldwide, is indeed the use of these new technologies to help us locate and identify sites either ones that have been known and sort of lost to knowledge, if you will, in the past, or new ones, to uh, be able to document um, what's going on below the ground without having to excavate everything. Sites are non-renewable resources. We want to preserve them for the future. Lord knows what kind of cool archaeology we could do 200 years from now. Um, also, so so that's a biggie. Also, uh, bringing more of the public into the archaeology. Um, it is there. It is their archaeology, and the best way to preserve it is to get them as excited about it as as we are, and to understand why it's important to preserve our past. So I think that's pretty much the biggies. No matter where you're going. And then for the research, research itself to try and sort of fill in the gaps and bring together sources of information from many, many different um, sciences, uh, humanities, um, to try uh, to get a better picture of, of that ancient world. Uh, along with the new specialization, like the work you know that I do, there's more folks now that do the kind of analysis that I do, um, and all sorts of other specials to draw them together to um, sort of see the big picture. Does um, does that 
kind of help give you a sense of where we're going with things. Yeah, yeah okay. and I yeah I I hope that you know our our discussion tonight inspires you know some of the you know listeners in high school to uh, you know seriously consider you know getting into uh, you know the uh, paleo ethno botany. <laughs> and uh, it's, you know, just, it, I mean, you know, you can tell you're a great teacher with, you know, all all, all the, uh, you know, uh, works that you know you're cited in. You know, we haven't even gotten to uh, Chris Carr's a site of Hopewell, but you know, you're uh, acclaimed for what you do. You know, you've brought a, a lot of great information uh, to the show. You've had inspired two callers to call in. Uh, <laughs> you know, th- this is you know, a perfect uh, show, and I, I, I just hope that more you've been able to get more people to look into this field as a career. I hope so. Um, I love it. It's mystery, intrigue, um, wonderment about, you know, our past. And our past does give us that grounding that we need and hopefully also insights and illuminate um, our future as well. And also it's just, well, dang, it's just fun. I mean, who else gets to, I get to hold things in my hands that hasn't seen the light of day for thousands of years. I mean, that's, that's, that's just cool. I know I'm a nerd. I can't help it. I've always been a nerd. But to me, that's just really exciting to, you know, from ancient Egyptian tombs up in the valleys to Hopewell to ancient mastodons to, you know, Roman forts, whatever. I find it all equally fascinating. Well, you know, it's really it's important that that the public be aware that our our future and our history and and the ancient structures that are here are just as old as Egypt, if not more. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that's, one that's of my... a very good point. I think that's the saddest thing is. Even some of the local folks right in the communities that have the Hopewell sites are off, many of them are simply unaware. And we have folks from, we've had visitors from all over the world that have come just to see the Hopewell archaeology because to them that's really cool stuff. And some of the local folks aren't even aware of it. Um, and, you know, that's a shame because it is just as cool. I mean, I've worked in Egypt. I've worked in England. I've worked in many different areas. And that are, that our archaeology is just cool and as as neat and as mystifying as anywhere else. And, yeah, we wouldn't should. It, wouldn't it be great if we taught it in school? Yeah, there are some places that do, but unfortunately not many do that. In fact, I get an awful lot of students who, you know, come to Bloomsbury University and discover 
anthropology and archaeology is a major um, when they take our classes because they never encountered it in in high school, um, and that's kind of sad. Um, so I'd like to see some more of that done. It's like, yo, there's some cool stuff out there. Embrace it, folks. Okay, and Dean, we have about three minutes left. Is there anything else you want to uh, plug? Uh, you know the uh, book and that, that's coming out from uh, the Chillicothe Conference in April. I do we even know what the name of that uh, book is yet? <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm, uh, that's funny you asked. I'm just sitting thinking to myself, do I know the name for that? You know, <laughs> I don't even know if I know the. I'm not sure what the official title is going to be, so uh, uh, that's so pathetic. I'm sorry, listeners. Okay, yeah. You go through working titles, and then when it gets published, sometimes it has a different title to it. So I'm not sure what it's going to be yet. Yeah, right. Okay, just hang on for a couple months. We'll get an answer from Jared. Is there anything else you want to plug the website for the Susquehanna Museum? Yeah, that's um, all you have to do is just Google. Um, it's pretty easy. S R A C S R A C dot com, and it'll take you right to the website. Um, so if you've got any folks in the New York area, um, and you want a kind of a nice day visit to a, a really sweet area, it's a good place to go. Oh, and anybody traveling through Ohio. All you have to do is pull out your Ohio road map or Google map, and it'll show you where um, the famous earthworks are, and you can definitely visit those. They're part of the national park system. Okay. And, uh, you know, the Ohio History Connection in Columbus has, uh, you know, you know talked yep. uh some of America's best artifacts on display as well. And is that where the uh, Burning Tree Mastodon is uh, curated? Uh, <laughs> or is that the, or at Cleveland? It's, uh, it's a long story. We don't have time. It got sold by the oh, landowner oh, okay. to Japan. Oh, uh, Okay. Uh, yeah, that's a long story. It's uh, our, uh, the United States does not protect its um, archaeology or paleontological treasures, and since it was on his land, he legally could sell it. So that's where it okay, was. Hey, Mark, Mark, you've got to start tying up. We've got like a minute left. Okay. 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 Uh, th- thank you, Dean Weimer, as you know, our special guest, uh, Barbara. Thank you for. Uh, producing the show, and I hope everyone has a uh, great Christmas. Um, you, you know, even wish that to the Blog Talk English Robo Babe, and we'll see everyone <laughs> after the uh, uh, Christmas vacation. No, I'm going to be on. Yeah, well, no, I'm going to be on between Christmas and New Year's. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, a couple 27. shows coming up. And yeah. uh, uh, ch- keep checking uh, BarbaraDeLong.com for uh, w- when we're having shows. It's sometimes you know, just a little uh, strange scheduling with the holiday, uh, Christmas and New Year's. 
we've had Mark, to move some shows. Mark, say good night. Mark, say good night. Okay, we're out. All right. Uh, good, good night. We'll see <laughs> good everyone. Good night, everyone. Yes, good night, everyone. Merry, Merry Christmas. <laughs>